Hi, and welcome to episode number 14 in the Signal Integrity Journal's Fundamentals Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Bogatin. I'm the technical editor of the Signal Integrity Journal. This episode is brought to you thanks to our friends at Rody and Schwartz. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Jay Diepenbrock. Jay is a signal integrity expert currently consulting and on the editorial advisory board of the Signal Integrity Journal. Join me in my conversation where I catch up with Jay and learn his efforts to bring back communications in storm-devastated areas with the IEEE and using high-performance cables. Jay, hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I am looking forward to this opportunity because I've known you for many years, but I haven't really paid much attention to your history and how you got into the signal integrity field. So I wanted to have a chance to catch up with you and and learn about kind of how you got started in this and how you end up where you are now. So I know you were at IBM. That was what I when I first met you. Were, yes. Was that your your first uh, job uh, out of uh, school? It was my first job out of school. But while I was in school, I did a couple of other things. I worked for a printed circuit board assembly shop for a summer, and I worked for the uh, U.S. Army's Harry Diamond Labs for two summers. And uh, both of those were very interesting. The uh, Harry Diamond Labs uh, work was doing uh, thick film uh, circuits and assembly, and so I learned how to how to do uh, how to how to make thick film circuits, which was really very interesting. And that was so, in the old days when we had thick film circuits. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I, I don't imagine anybody's doing that anymore. Now, it, was it that was, the polymer thick film or is that ceramic thick film? Ceramic. Okay. And I also did some uh, programming of a, of a test system for them, and uh, I've I've done similar work since then. But yes, my my first permanent job, so to speak, uh, out of college was was at IBM. Well, let's and, let's go back and talk about your interns because um, that was while you were in college working yes. undergraduate. Okay, because I have a lot of students these days that I'm encouraging to uh, spend summers uh, working in companies, get that uh-huh. experience. Did you find that that experience for you? has been valuable for you or was it a uh, was it a stepping stone or was it a uh, finally got it over with oh no I, I really enjoyed the work and and uh, I was very pleased that the folks that I worked with uh, were, were very gracious and and helpful and uh, it was not you know sort of an empty the trash can or clean the bathrooms kind of job <laughs> I was I was doing real real work and uh, it was it was a great opportunity the uh, the circuit board plant, which was the uh, after my freshman year, w- was also interesting. But um, it, it was, you know, I was doing things like teaching people how to solder and stuff like that, and uh, and also doing some assembly work. Uh, but uh, the the Harry Diamonds Labs work w- was much more technically interesting, and uh, uh, had the possibility of, of being a, a person permanent job when I got out of school. Uh, but IBM offered me a better salary, and I thought career-wise, it would it would be a better choice as far as the future was concerned. Do you the, think uh, that your intern positions helped you get the IBM job, or did I think it so. influ- Okay, I so think that so, yeah. experience you had before you graduated was valuable for you. Absolutely, absolutely. I also had a part-time job while I was in college, uh, working in of all things the geology department, where I was. Uh, digitizing data and uh, running running uh, computer analysis using some programs that a PhD student had written. And so uh, that was not my only experience, but uh, 
I, I like to think that that all the jobs I've had have prepared me for future things. Uh -huh. And so, for instance, when I started at IBM, I was actually in an IC design group. Uh, and of course, these days, if I were to tell you how how big the chips were, you would you would, <laughs> you would really have a, a good chuckle because uh, at the time it was the it was the biggest chip they had designed in terms of the number of circuits, and yet. Uh, if you talk about that now, people would go, what? Are you crazy? I mean, <laughs> that's, um, and yet uh, I learned a lot about simulation. I learned a lot about uh, fabrication processes. I learned how companies operate, which, which of course is, is pretty different than the way the Army lab operates. Um, and the thing that was nice about uh, IBM uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to work for a big company. They think it's a lot of bureaucracy and so forth. Uh, but I, uh, I learned a lot at IBM. I worked with a lot of very smart people. Uh, I learned how much I didn't know. Uh, you know, you come out of school and you think, oh, I've learned all this stuff and, and uh, you know, yeah. they're going to be, they're going to be happy to have me. Well, they were happy to have me, but I, I realized how much I really didn't know. For instance, there was a, a whole department, maybe two departments, and all they did was device modeling. Now, you're, you're big into simulation, as, as uh, many of your, your listeners know. Um, IBM was and still is big into simulation. In fact, they had, they had uh, written their own simulator because there wasn't one. And this was before Spice. But they had two whole departments. All they did was do device models for transistors and diodes and, and things like that. And um, I realized how much I didn't know about doing that. And uh, another another nice thing about working for a big company was you had stability, and uh, you you could do a lot of different things in the same company. Uh, you know, you learn how to how to navigate the HR system and all those those sort of mundane things. But it, it's nice to be in a place where you could you could do a different technical assignments, even go to a completely different field, without having to relearn all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. And. And so you kind of got into this, not because it was something you were studying in school, but because it was an opportunity that was provided for you. Yes. Yes. And, and it was something that was interesting. Uh -huh. And so I went from uh, working in this IC design group to an analog circuits group that was designing circuits on printed circuit boards. So a completely different level of packaging, uh, but all the IC experience, learning about simulation, learning about packaging, that stuff all applied uh, as far as background. And then uh, the opportunity came up to do some, some work for, let me call them the product group. So those are the folks that build the boxes. And so somebody needed to have a, uh, a backplane designed. And I knew a little bit about print circuit boards. I knew a little bit about simulation. Uh, I'm a I'm a longtime ham radio operator, so I've always been interested in high frequency stuff and antennas and propagation and and reflections and all. And that uh, that gave me the opportunity to to do that kind of work. And uh, then we had a uh, a project working on a this is kind of a skunk works project. Uh, it was sort of off the radar because it wasn't a mainstream product to do a, a cable modem design. And we did not only the cable modem, but we also did what's called the head end. So that's the, the, the thing at the other end. And you know, both of those involved uh, card level design. They involved uh, RF design, some DSP. Uh, didn't really use the, the backplane 
signal integrity work. But again, it was it was uh, it's good to have that experience under your belt. Pick up the skills you needed to do the either the backplane or the RF design. Yes, absolutely. And then when that project ended, the uh, I, I went in a completely different direction. That had been in the communications uh, division, and um, I took a job in procurement engineering. Which you might say, well, well, you know, what's that's just buying stuff, right? Well, I was working in the group that was working on cables and connectors. And so uh, all of those previous uh, projects fit into that as far as experience and, and background is concerned, because we were we were starting to do things like InfiniBand and uh, high-speed backplane connectors, and and all of that is is heavily into signal integrity, as you well know. And so that's that's why I feel like a lot of those previous assignments had uh, kind of prepared me for that job. Uh, how and, did you how did you pick up those skills? Was it just uh, working with other folks, and and uh, there weren't many books, not many classes about no. signal integrity in those days. Well, there there were some classes. Uh, I started going to Design Con, learned a lot at Design Con. Uh, one of my managers said, hey, you know, it'd be really good for your career if you would if you would learn how to write conference papers. And so I started writing conference papers for IEEE conferences that were related to the technical stuff I was doing at, at IBM. And um, that also led to, uh, they, they also encouraged us to be involved in, in what they called industry influence. So not only through conferences, but also being uh, participating in standards committees. Mm -hmm. And so I, I uh, volunteered to join a committee on electrical measurements that turned into EIA 364, which is a, an early uh, electronic measurement standard for cables and connectors. Um, I was asked to participate in the InfiniBand committee, uh, which again is, was heavily signal integrity. And, and in fact, I was the editor of the, the cable and connector chapter of that standard early on. Um, I was also on the PCI Express Cabling Committee, the USB Cable Committee. You know, you, you get the you get the picture. Yeah. They're all related. And so uh, you end up working with a lot of the same people in some cases, but also you you learn some new things. And so you early on uh, got into the cable connector side of things in the yes. design process. And is that something you kind of stayed with uh, throughout your, your whole career? Yes, the rest of the time at IBM, yes. Uh, we, uh, we built up a, a fairly well-equipped uh, electrical test lab. And so, uh, you know, had network analyzers and impedance analyzers and TDRs and, and the sort of normal equipment and learn how to use those in the process of, of doing that work. I also worked with uh, the people and the, again, the, the product group that were building the, the boxes. And, and this was uh, really across the product line. Uh, they would have a, a problem or they'd have a question about, well, gee, why do my signals look bad? And they'd bring their, their uh, printed circuit board over and we'd do some measurements and, and say, well, you know, you've got, you've got some serious discontinuities here and here and here on the board. And I go, wow, you can, you can find that stuff. <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was not just sort of a, a closed environment. Uh, you know, I, I tried to, to help those other folks do their jobs as well. And, and and educate them on principles of signal integrity while you know, kind of broadening my horizons a little at the same time. 
So when you started IBM, you didn't have a plan of, I'm going to become a cable and connector expert. Oh, absolutely you, not. It's something that you, you just kind of looked at opportunities along the way and, and uh, kind of random walked along yes. uh, uh, it, to, get to, where you, uh, to uh, get to where you are now. Yes. And, and I tried to find jobs that would use the skills that I had already rather than jumping into something that I knew absolutely nothing about. And so you finished your career at IBM uh, in the cable and connector kind of commodity management side of things. Well, it, it was it was procurement engineering. So procurement. I, I was not buying the components, but I was I was sort of the technical advisor to the people that were buying them. So we would we would test the products, would work with the the development folks and say, hey, you know, if you want to do uh, such so many gigabits with so many pins. Uh, in this kind of package, here are some things you might want to look at. We would then get samples or uh, actual, in, in a lot of cases, custom built uh, assemblies, for instance, a new connector or a new cable. And we, the suppliers would build sample parts. We would test them to see if they met the spec. If not, we'd work with them to try to get them to, to improve the performance and, and so forth. So. Uh, I, I was not dealing with prices, for instance. It was just the technical aspects. And and that was where uh, you finished out with IBM. Yes. And then you, and did you retire from IBM or you left at some yes. point? Yes, I did. I was there for not quite 36 years. Wow. Wow. And instead of just, you know, sinking off into the sunset, you kept in the industry. Yes. Yes. I, I uh, took a job with a Chinese cable manufacturer for about three years after I left IBM. And so again, using those those uh, high-speed cable skills, knowledge of standards, knowledge of test equipment and procedures and so forth. And uh, then uh, in 2015, I left there and I thought, well, you know, I'm I'm still young enough. I'd, I'd like to be able to, to use these things I've learned to help people solve problems. Uh, I'm not ready to just drop it all. It'd be, it'd be a waste to, to learn all this all this material and not use it for something. And so uh, the, the really nice thing about being a consultant is all you have to do is just declare yourself to be one. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, but I, you also have the creds behind you to, sure. to support your expertise. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I did uh, you know, incorporate it as an LLC. So it, it's an official business. I don't, I don't make a lot of money at it, but uh, there is a uh, decent-sized signal integrity community, and I've I've been very fortunate to have some some of so, uh, friends and associates that have met throughout the years, like you, and um, and some of those folks have been kind enough to to refer some business to me. And you focus in your consulting business then in problems related to cables and connectors. Well, not not it's not limited to that. In fact, most of the work has been in uh, PCB-based products. And also the uh, the MATLAB programming work because at at, uh, at the Chinese cable manufacturer uh, developed and built a a MATLAB driven cable test system. So that includes not just the the MATLAB software, but also the the switch matrix, the the uh, network analyzer, the the fixtures, all the stuff that goes with that. And uh, so we we worked on uh, on that for. Uh, a number of customers, some of which were custom and some of which were kind of standard, like, you know, QSFP cables. 
And when it comes to that kind of characterization, that kind of a system, it's predominantly you're looking at insertion return loss and then like channel-to-channel crosstalk. Is that the yes. kind yes. of outputs? Exactly. Um, and so you put an automated system together to be able to do production-level testing? Yes. Uh-huh. Do you find that is a common requirement or a common kind of a tool that companies are interested in? Yes, particularly in the cable industry. Uh, I'm not sure if it's true as much in the uh, the PCB world or the backplane world. I think that tends to be more um, more an environment where you would you would do manual testing. Say you you know, have some test cards you plug into a backplane. They would have uh, SMA connectors on them, for instance, and you would use the instruments to characterize those, but not really in a production environment. Mm-hmm. And so right now, then, you focus on uh, any signal integrity kind of problems that come your way. Yes. Yes. And things like designing the cross-section of the PCB, you know, which are the line of width spaces and height above ground be, what kind of materials to use. Um, we don't so much get into things like connectors. It, it's mostly the, the board mm-hmm. itself. Now, you mentioned that you've been a ham radio operator for a long time, and I know you're leveraging some of that skill set with the IEEE yes. and you're, you're involved in a, a disaster recovery program. What, what exactly is that? Well, the, uh, the IEEE after hurricane or superstorm Sandy, which was, I guess in 20, uh, I don't know, 2013, 14, I don't remember. Um, they did some focus groups and they asked people, what were the biggest problems you had after the storm? And the, the two biggest needs that people had were power and communications. You know, if the power's out in their house, obviously they have no heat or air conditioning, but they also mm-hmm. can't do things like charge their phones. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, by the way, uh, many of the cell phone towers had been blown down by the storm. So they were, they were isolated. They couldn't communicate. They couldn't call grandma and say, hey, we're okay. You know, don't worry about us. And so the, uh, uh, a group of, I don't know how many people it was, but the, uh, a group of, of uh, IEEE members got together and said, hey, let's let's see what we can do. We, we have all these people with these technical skills. Let's see if we can use those skills to, to help people after things like, like storms. And so they designed a, a truck, which is called the MOVE truck. Uh, I believe the current acronym is Mobile Outreach for uh, Volunteer Engagement. It's, uh, it, it's basically a 32-foot box truck that's loaded with radios and networking gear and a, and a generator. And so uh, the f- truck was first delivered in March of 2016. And since then has been to something like 20, 25, 29 deployments. I don't remember the number. Wow. And in fact, we, uh, we were given a second truck by Cisco Systems uh, the summer of last year, 2021. And uh, so what happens is we're, uh, we've uh, put together a memorandum of understanding with the Red Cross. So we're a Red Cross partner. And most of the deployments were requested by the Red, Qua- Red Cross to go to some specific place, usually a, a couple of days after the storm has gone through. So we're not technically called first responders. We're more like second responders because we don't want to be there when the storm is still blowing around and blowing things over. So and, you go uh, there with your truck, and what, what's the primary role that you try to provide? Well, again, the, the primary role is to provide power for people to do things like charge their phones. If the Red Cross has a, uh, 
a temporary headquarters or a, you know, a district office or something that's set up in an in a empty storefront, uh, we could provide power for them to run their computers and run their communications gear, you know, printers, stuff like that, um, while they're working with what they refer to as the clients who've been affected by the storm. And then we also have uh, both LTE and satellite-based internet capability on the truck so that if all the communications are out, we could put up the satellite dish and give people internet connectivity by way of Wi-Fi. You're or, or a little, Ethernet. You're an access port then for yes. uh, the community there. Exactly. Yeah, we don't uh -huh. provide cell phone service because that's that's not our job. And and the, the cell phone companies are, are pretty good about bringing out things they call cows, uh, cell on wheels, which are basically trailers with a with an antenna on them and, and uh, you know, communications gear. Uh, but they don't provide power to uh, for people to charge their phones with. So if all the power's out, it doesn't do any good to have a cell phone tower. You can't mm -hmm. talk to it. Mm -hmm. And so you have a whole bunch of what USB ports on your truck that folks can come in and, and plug their phones into. Well, no, we uh, well we have we have some some little six port chargers that have USB cables on them, but we don't uh, we don't really want to have their phones on the truck because we don't want to have to worry about somebody coming in and stealing them. So usually what we'll do is we'll put a table outside the truck with a you know a power strip and a bunch of chargers on it and they can just plug in there, they can sit with their phone and then when it's charged they they take it away with them. And then if they have their computer or their phone working, they'll just tie into your uh, Wi-Fi network and then uh, right. get connected. Right. So we have another a number of wireless access points that we can deploy either on the truck or outside the truck. Sometimes uh They'll ask us to provide Wi-Fi service into a shelter where they might have, you know, a couple of hundred clients. So we'll take an Ethernet cable into the building, put an access point up on the wall of the gym or the high school or, you know, wherever it is. And uh, people can can then uh, use their computers. The kids can check their homework. They can do their email, their, their web mm. browsing and so forth. And, and so what? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. And, it, and, and it's amazing to hear the comments about. Uh, how much it lifted the spirits of the people there to be able to communicate. They, they, they really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I bet. So what sort of um, places have you been to with your truck? Oh, well, uh, me personally, the, the first big one I went to was Hurricane Harvey in Houston, where they had had you know, 50 inches of rain in, in a couple of days, and everything was flooded. And uh, uh, it was just a total mess. You know, the, they had a lot of heavy winds. They had a lot of houses flooded. They had a, a shelter in the convention center that I think had 5,000 people in it at one point. Um, so I spent three weeks there and was mostly fixing radios on the uh, Red Cross's uh, IRV trucks, the emergency response vehicles that they use to go out to, to give out meals to people who, have, who can't cook. You know, they drive through the neighborhoods and give out meals. Well, uh, the radio antennas on these trucks get broken off by going by trees and all. So I was replacing antennas. Uh, we had radios that didn't work. We had PA systems that didn't work. So I spent three weeks basically fixing those. And then uh, Hurricane Irma went through the Keys in Florida right after that. And they said, no, 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 no. We, we don't want you to go home. We want you to go to Florida. <laughs> so, so I spent, I spent a couple of weeks in, in the Keys. And, and again, you know, a lot of wind damage, a lot of flooding. Huh. Um, I wasn't on the truck at that point because the truck was staffed. Um, but I was, I was the relief crew for when those guys went home. Usually they, uh -huh. they like a minimum of two weeks deployment. 
and you know you get tired after a while yeah so so in that case i was actually doing red cross work um we were set up in a in a big tent city uh in the uh on the soccer field of a catholic church and uh so we were we were you know running the the red cross computers and and uh, handing out cell phones and uh and, and things like that. So it, it, it really varies. Uh, but I've been to, uh, uh, I was at the Kentucky uh, tornado site last Christmas. I was in, in Kentucky again for the floods this summer. As I mentioned before we started, I just got back from three weeks in, in Florida. Uh, we were mostly on Pine Island where Hurricane Ira made a real mess. Uh, so I don't know exactly how many deployments they've been on. I've lost count, but it's in the, it's in the 20s. And, uh, so we've been all over the place. And so um, some em- emergency response group has your number on speed dial. And when there's, <laughs> a, when there's a, a disaster, they give you a call and you pick up your truck and drive down to them? Well, usually what happens is they, uh, the Red Cross calls the IEEE contact and says, you know, they, they're familiar with our capabilities. We've, we've worked with them enough that they know who we are. And they call up and say, we would like you to go to such and such a place. Can you, can you do it? And then we have to go find out, well, do we have a driver? Do we have a crew member? Because we always go with at least two. Uh, do we have people that can staff the truck and, and do this mission? And uh, then they start calling us and saying, can you go? What a great service that you're providing uh, these communities. Well, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it fun in the normal sense, but it's very gratifying. Yeah. One of the things that it makes me do is it makes me appreciate what I have. When I when I see people who've lost literally everything, uh, I'm just really thankful that that, that I'm not only uh, in their position, but I'm also thankful that I can help them out. And this whole part of the IEEE is all volunteer staff. Yes. Yes. It's all it's it's funded by the IEEE Foundation, which is all funded by donations. Uh, the folks that designed the original truck and those of us who maintain both trucks now are all volunteers nobody's paid uh, and so um, it's it's uh it, yeah it's just something we do because we we like to do it and and well i mean it's it it's such a great uh, opportunity for you to give back and and uh to be received by the communities that you help out that's right that's yeah. right yeah well, Jay, that's all the time we have for uh, today. Thank you so much for joining me on our our uh, conversation here. And uh, look forward to hearing more about uh, the wonderful opportunities that uh, you're providing for people out there that uh, have suffered some of these disasters. And uh, look forward to hearing more about some of your consulting activities. Great. I really appreciate the invitation, Eric. And I was, <laughs> was happy to do it today. Okay. Thanks we'll be much. in touch. Okay. okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye. And that concludes my interview. My thanks to Jay Diepenbrock for joining us and to Rodian Schwartz for sponsoring this broadcast. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. I hope you check out all of our other podcasts at the Signal Integrity Journal. And that's 30 for this edition. <laughs>